Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to have you with us for another show. Uh, let's get right to the panel. We've got Kevin Riley. He is, of course, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for being here. Always great to be here, Bill. A pleasure to have you here. Howard Franklin, Democratic strategist, lobbyist, lobbyist extraordinaire. <laughs> you're busy right now. Absolutely. Thank you for having us, Yeah. It's why you're wearing a suit and tie, exactly. I imagine. Okay. Also joining us, Brian Robinson, a Republican insider. Brian, of course, was Nathan Deal's uh, communications director during the first term and then went out uh, and began his own business where you do, you do consulting on a variety with businesses and others about Communications. I, mean, I do basically the same work I did for Nathan Deal, but uh, in the business community, and I work with lobbyists like, uh, like, like this guy right here to uh, <laughs> sort of, if they, particularly if their issues go over into the public media sphere. Okay. Uh, by the way, I want our uh, listeners to know that in honor of President Trump's meal for the Clemson Tigers, he had him at the White House yesterday to congratulate them on their national championship. And, of course, he brought in hamburgers, Burger King, McDonald's, the like. Brian Robinson, the Republican that he is, walked in with a bag of French fries and a Coke from Burger King. I wanted to celebrate the Clemson Tiger victory one more time, right here. Wearing a bulldog sweatshirt or jacket. That's right. Uh, Julianne Thompson, uh, we, we mentioned, I think, on some of our social media that Julianne was going to be with us today. Uh, Julianne had to go to Washington. Uh, she's up there meeting. I think she's up there talking with people about strategies in terms of communicating as this uh, uh, federal shutdown continues. So Julianne is not with us today, but, of course, she will be on the show as soon as we can reschedule her to join us. All right. Um, I should also say that we're going to talk about the legislature a little later in the show. And when we do, Stephen Fowler, the GPB reporter at the Capitol, is going to join us from down there to uh, participate in our conversation about how things are beginning to unfold at the state Capitol. But let's do this. Kevin, let's start by talking about this shutdown, 24 25, going into 25 days now, longest shutdown in history. And it's being felt right here in Georgia in many ways. Right. You know, I, I, we keep wondering if the shutdown's going to uh, reach a critical mass because, you know, the truth be told, it hasn't affected most of us, you know. But the long lines at the airport, now that's serious stuff, right? The airport advising people to show up three hours early. It reminds me of something that always comes up for us at the newspaper and our website when a president or presidential candidate visits town. Obviously, a huge political moment. Obviously, lots of news coverage. But if you check what story people click on on the website, they click on the story that describes the traffic problems yeah. they'll face. Because personal inconvenience and how this shutout plays, how this shutdown plays out with people's personal inconvenience will probably be the single most important thing. Well, and we'll talk about that. But as long as you mentioned uh, the presidential visit, Brian, you as a communications guy would understand this. Um, there are people there are people in presidential entourages who work for presidents who look carefully at what time a president is, you know, they plan him him to land, say, at Dobbins, if it's a Republican, down at Hartsfield, if it's a Democratic president, because they hope they can avoid the anger that people are going to feel by being stuck in, say, rush hour traffic. Oh, when, when you shut down the downtown <laughs> connector in Atlanta, yeah, yeah. I... I, I, I you know it's never vote for you again if you do that. You know, it's just like those of us who had to wait outside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium for two hours during the national championship game last year because the president decided to come. It is a major inconvenience for everybody. And, uh, you know, we'll see how long this plays out as far as the the shutdown. But it is beginning to come down to normal people like us who do not work for the federal government. And I, I, I know it's got business implications because if I had to travel 
by choice, I would not fly today because getting through TSA at Hartsfield is hard enough on a day when they're fully staffed. Well, I should say that, of course, the headlines that it made not just Atlanta news, not just Kevin's newspaper, but national news about Hartsfield's hour to hour and a half uh, lines at TSA yesterday uh were largely because it was Monday morning, always a very busy time at the airport. About an hour before we came on the air, I checked the Hartsfield website, and the security wait lines were back down to what we normally see, 15 minutes to 30 minutes. So this isn't going to be continual, but you've got to imagine, Howard, it's going to get worse before it gets better as TSA workers decide they're too sick to come in. No, I I totally agree. Uh, Yesterday, my wife was traveling for work and uh, had an early morning flight, I think, it did not matter. She was texting me from line, frantically worrying that she was not going to make her flight. And, I, you know, I don't know if it's a fair comparison to look at Tuesday afternoon to Monday morning. I, we have a, a really large traveling consultants class in the city of Atlanta, folks who travel all across the country to do work. I, I imagine we'll start to see a, a revolving door, folks, having to ex- expect or plan for two and a half, three hours on Monday mornings, maybe seeing more folks Friday nights as well. Well, with that in mind, Kevin, Delta Airlines, today says they anticipate they could lose as much as $25 million in revenue thanks to the shutdown. You want to help us understand what they're talking about? Well, apparently it's uh, a couple things when you think about it. It's people are not traveling, as Brian just indicated. I mean, he's a consultant, and if he has a choice to travel or not, not doing it, then, of course, government contractors, you know, they're not being paid, that their projects are held up. So, um, again, I, you know, I, I think it's always hard to get a great handle on the business implications of something like this because, again, since it's become partisan, it can be exaggerated in one way or another. But Delta also said they're delaying launching their new Airbus jets because there's no one at the FAA, I guess, to approve them or whatever process an airline goes through to get those things in the air. Well, we wow. are in uncharted territory, right? We've 25 days, 26 days. At, at some point, even if we can't figure out what the implications are in real time, I think we'll have some accounting for it after the fact. That, and I agree, Kevin, there, there will be partisan shading as to whatever, what ultimately happens. So um, here are a couple of other interesting notes, uh, Brian, that are the ironic uh, 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 consequences of the budget shut of the government shutdown. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, immigration courts in Atlanta and in cities across the country are shutting down. So some of those undocumented uh, residents that the Trump administration wants to get out of the country as fast as possible cannot be processed because the immigration courts are shutting down. Uh, other federal courts by the end of this week, or in fact by now, are already starting uh, to shut down. Um, border security folks are not getting their paychecks. Those are kind of little ironies of all this, aren't they? Well, maybe it explains why the Democrats won't come to the table with any sort of compromise because they're getting the policy in that they want, which is uncontrolled borders and an uncontrolled flow of illegal immigration into the country, which seems to be now their new position. Um, Coward, <laughs> want to pick up on that? I just I want to remind all the listening public out there that this shutdown occurred under complete Republican control of Washington, the White House, the Senate, and the House. And if if your president couldn't get Republicans to agree uh, to building a five billion dollar wall, what makes anyone think he's going to get Democrats to agree? I, I just don't see why or how we glaze over that very simple and irrefutable fact. Uh, another thing, <clears throat> you, know, you know, on that on that topic, I. I I'm glad you brought that up, Howard, because I, I really don't know why they went home for Christmas without doing something to patch it. it. It really is baffling to me. Maybe the Republicans in Congress were just frustrated and just threw their hands up in the air. I don't know. But we would all be a lot better off if they had patched this under Republican control. And I wish that they had, because I think we could have gotten the policy goal that Republicans want, which is uh, more border security and progress on the wall. Um, yeah, Brian, um, the Mitch McConnell's been so silent on this yeah. thing. And so depending on what news source you want to listen to, you hear different reasons for that. Yeah. But what do you think? What do you think he's – do you think it's a strategy or you think he's just like, I don't want to get near this thing. I don't want to have to own this thing. It's, he's, in a, he's in a tough spot because, one, he represents Kentucky. He's not just the majority leader. He's in a state where Trump is wildly popular. There is nothing politically good for his seat to be against Trump on this. So, and he can't go out there and, like, cut a deal with Democrats that undercuts the majority of his caucus because the majority of his caucus 
is with Trump on this. Now, there are these people wavering. You're hearing about these people in swing states wanting to cut a deal to keep the government open. People like Lindsey Graham and people, swing I mean, I think there are actually heartland Republicans who are saying this is hurting my constituents separate the wall from the shutdown. Or at least I think Lindsey Graham said yesterday, two days ago, bring us back for three weeks. Let's see if we can reach a deal. And then if not, then we'll go ahead and give you the power to uh, to use the military to build this wall. And that's Lindsey Graham, who I love. But Lindsey Graham is his own brand, his own thing. I and mean, sure, he doesn't he's not. He's the kind of guy who stops and does. He's the definitely media. his own thing. No argument there. <laughs> yeah. He's, and, 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 and every night on the nightly news, you see him doing a scrum with media. I mean, he's, he's out there every day in a way that no one else is. So, you know, uh, McConnell really can't go cut a deal because he, he would be losing the majority of his caucus. And so the best thing for him is to just stay on the sidelines and let because at the end of the day, there's got to be a deal between Schumer, Pelosi and Trump. And I agree with him. Why bring something to the floor of the Senate and make your people go out on a limb and choose between bad options if the Trump uh, White House is going to veto it? That's leadership for you. <laughs> so another a uh, couple of other uh, repercussions here in Georgia. Uh, some This isn't a big number. Nevertheless, it is a number. More than 400 unemployed federal workers are out of work for the time being. Federal workers have now employed it, it applied for unemployment compensation uh, uh, through the state. I mean, there are thousands and thousands uh, who uh, apply at any given time. But still, Kevin, there's it to hear that we've got government workers who have to employ for uh, have to apply for unemployment compensation is feels wrong. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a strange time because. Um, this debate and the very human impact that it has. And, you know, it's, it's, we talked to, uh, you know, the, that author a couple of weeks ago, this collision between values and interests, you know what I mean? And uh, it's uh, the New York Times published a story today about just how strongly some people feel in some places they focused on West Virginia, for example. And uh, people are saying, well, if it takes, it does a little damage to get something so important done, we should do it. But uh, it's just, Hard to believe that, you know, people who work for the government, who tend to be people who who see their public service as a, a real part of their identity, would have to suffer this way for what is a fairly, you know, crazy political situation. Five that's members of the Georgia delegation have now said they'll forego paychecks as long as the federal workers aren't getting paid. They have already missed one paycheck. Buddy Carter, Republican of Pooler, Rob Woodall of Lawrenceville. Austin Scott, Doug Collins, and Rick Evans, all Republicans, and uh, Senator David Perdue, they've all said, uh, just withhold our salaries uh, for the time being. There are some 70 members of Congress who have uh, asked uh, that they do that. Uh, Buddy Carter said, if the hardworking federal employees in the first district of Georgia aren't receiving a paycheck, I won't either. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, this thing is really really ongoing. I thought it would be interesting. I, I mean, as, as a communications guy, I think it's brilliant. I think it's where they need to be. It, you know, they are anticipating the obvious question in the hallway as they're walking out of the, the House of Congress in which they uh, they serve. And, and they've got an answer ready now. And it's harder to explain why you're still getting paid when you're not, quote unquote, doing your job. And that, that's what the, the public narrative becomes. All right. When was the last? We now are in the longest government shutdown ever. Who was in charge of the U.S. House? When was the last one? What What was the shutdown that until yesterday was the longest shutdown? Wasn't that Newt Gingrich? Newt Gingrich, yeah. 1995. Yeah. Kevin, you win what's left of the French fries in Brian Robinson's <laughs> bag. I, I don't think there are any left. <laughs> so it, 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 and it's worth thinking about. This was 1995. Gingrich was Speaker of the House. He was feuding with Clinton uh, there are some interesting folk stories that go along with the shutdown. Uh, they went to the funeral. Gingrich was on board Air Force One with Clinton and uh, Bob Dole from the Senate to fly to Israel for the uh, the, the funeral of um, um, of uh, uh, prime minister uh, at the time. Uh, yes, the prime minister of Israel. He was who was uh, assassinated. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin. Bean, yeah, and on the flight back. Gingrich sat in the back of the plane. The president sat up front. Gingrich complained afterward that there should have been plenty of time for the president to negotiate with Dole and with uh, Gingrich 
about the issues that were leading to the shutdown. That was interpreted to mean that uh, Gingrich was acting like a baby because he wasn't invited to sit up front with the president. That's an interesting story in and of itself. But yesterday, uh, Newt was interviewed on National Public Radio, and he talked about that shutdown. And it's worth listening to today because it tells us a little bit about the mindset of what Republicans are dealing with. It uh, led to an agreement with uh, Clinton that led to uh, welfare reform, the largest capital gains tax cut in history, and uh, four straight balanced budgets for the only time in your lifetime. And we wouldn't have gotten to them without the the level of intensity, I mean, I think that we couldn't have moved the system that far without having raised the heat. But what do you tell federal workers who are out of out of work right now, going without pay, if they feel like they're being held hostage for a political dance? What I, what I tell them is that, unfortunately, it is part of the American system. And look, the, I, I would love to have the federal employee unions, who are overwhelmingly Democratic, who are upset, would call Schumer and Pelosi and say, why is this such a big deal to you? And the Senate passed the right bill, which will guarantee them that they get paid uh, when this is over, period. So they will all get compensated. Whether they go to work or not, whether they're laid off or not, everybody will get paid. That's uh, Newt Gingrich on NPR the other day talking with uh, uh, NPR host David Green. Howard, uh, it is interesting that Gingrich raises this whole question about weaponizing a government shutdown, and it's hard not to use the language that has been used, which is government workers are being held hostage. Really, at this point, they may feel that they're being held hostage by both sides. Well, polling seems to suggest that they're, the majority of Americans hold Blame Republicans Trump. and, and Absolutely. Trump. And obviously he went on television and said, hey, I'll take this on. I also uh, pr- presumably was saying I want the credit when we finally do get the border wall, or we get other concessions that I've been asking for. But I, I think Gingrich is, is a, the perfect person to have weigh in in this conversation. He absolutely talked about what he learned through weaponizing the shutdown. I think the difficulty with taking that approach here is you've got a president who really only, or at least in, in his uh, in his actions or his deeds, has said he wants one thing. And it's the thing that this new Congress, you know, over their dead bodies, would they ever deliver to him? So I just, I don't know where there's a there's a concession or a compromise to be made on a half, a five and a half billion dollar So, uh, it, it, Brian, it is correct that most of the polling, most recently, by the way, Quinnipiac has released a poll which really shows by a pretty significant margin people blame the president more than they do Democrats in the Congress. I get that. But you sort of raised this a minute ago, and you're the communications guy on this panel, the political communications guy. Um, I'm still not sure. I've said this on the show before, and I'd love to have a little bit more of a conversation about it. I'm not sure that the Democratic messaging, even though they've got the advantage, apparently, is resonating. Nancy Pelosi says a wall is immoral. I don't think that tells us anything. I want the Democrats to say, here's the money we've invested in border security. Here's how it's worked. There's um, multi-millions of dollars out there that we've appropriated uh, for border security that they haven't spent yet. I just worry uh, that we're not getting strong communications really from either side on this thing. But Democrats... Nancy Pelosi is the only Democrat who stayed in Washington over the weekend, and they made a big deal out of that while all of the rest of her leadership went home. I don't know that that's the best way to handle this. Can I just frame this a little further, Bill? Absolutely, that's a great question. But I would would also have to ask, why? Right? Donald Trump is his own worst enemy. In front of a microphone, why? Why if, if Mitch McConnell should wait into it, why should Democrats? What wait do you into think? It? What do you think, Brian? I think that Pelosi did a, a huge disfavor to uh, everyone when she cited it's immoral. Okay, well if it's immoral, we not only need to not fund new wall, we need to go out and tear down the rest because we don't want to be immoral. Well, right? there, there's the and look and, and let me tell you further the the reason why you're not seeing them talk about their record on border security, why they are not embracing their rhetoric of the last fifteen years, is because <laughs> their position has changed. Their position now is that. Any effort to control who comes into this country is wrong. That's the problem that I think Democrats face, Kevin. 
that that Republicans are saying we're for border security. Democrats want open borders. Well, Democrats, of course, don't want open borders. The question is, are they making it when the president or Brian Robinson says that? Are they strongly rejecting that with language that the American people understand? Because now the polls are in their favor. But as this thing drags on, at what point are the people of this country going to start saying, hmm, maybe both sides are in the wrong here and we should throw them all out? Well, I think that is where this is going, because um, the Democrats could get themselves in big trouble if they're just keeping against something without being able to articulate clearly and concisely what they're for. And you know, I I just try to think about how an average person probably thinks about this, right? Which is this. None of us, no one, none of the listeners out there gets to not accomplish or compromise or get something done in their job, right? I mean, Bill, you don't get to have a bad day or disagree with your producers on what you should do, throw up your hands and say, we'll have no show then. And I will not do a show <laughs> until Tom agrees with exactly how I want to do it. You know, I mean, think about that for a second. You, you can't do that in you your try, family. Bill. You got to try it. You can't do that. In a, I mean, I'd go with Tom, just so you know. Yeah. What happens, I'm with Tom. Well, he's yeah. the one who always says I should keep inviting you back. See, that's why. That's why. But, but I think to average people, it does come down to that. You have a job to do. Do it. I get it's hard. Howard, but do it. I I agree with Kevin. I mean, uh, we saw the same lesson unfold with health care and Republicans in the last election cycle. You got to have something to put forward. I don't know that all the investment of the declining number of uh, undocumented uh, residents or, or, or foreigners coming into the country would really mean something to the American people. I do think we need a forward looking approach. And, and the only one I've heard, the one I've heard the most about is acknowledging that we should be upgrading whatever security measures we're investing in. If that's drones, if that's a smart fence, you know, we shouldn't be building. And and Trump got himself some trouble talking about medieval devices, wheels versus walls. But we we shouldn't be building a a wall that could be cut through with a regular handsaw. I got to get to a break. But before we do... As we say in my church, Brian Robinson over here is sitting on spilkies because he wants to make a point before the break. Go ahead. Do you know what funny. I'm talking about? Do you know what spilkies are? You know, funny enough, they do not say that at Mount Presbyterian <laughs> Church. So that's not, I'm not totally familiar um, with that. But um, the thing on these, where I, where I disagree with Kevin is Americans don't expect Congress and the president to get to work. Americans have elected a dysfunctional government. Americans are getting the government that they voted for. We have time and time again, this really frustrates me. I'm a pragmatist more than a partisan or an ideologue. And it really frustrates me that the people who win the primaries are the people who promise that they will never compromise. They will never make a deal, except for Donald Trump. Donald Trump did promise to make deals. And and this is what this is the end result of that pattern. And we've this has gone on for years now. We deserve this. All right. I've got to get to a break. First break of the show. Um, so, Brian, you got the last word on that segment. Glad you did. Uh, you're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be back in a moment. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. But in my new podcast with GPB, we're going to challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. Join me for The Bitter Southerner podcast. Details are at bittersouthener.com. We're back on Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, is with us. Uh, Democrat Howard Franklin, Republican Brian Robinson. And uh, joining us on the phone from the state capitol is GPB's capital reporter, legislative reporter. No, he's not there yet? All right, we'll get him up in I'm a few here. minutes. Stephen Fowler I'm, is going to be joining I'm us. Here. Oh, you are there. Okay. Hello, Stephen. Yeah, How I'm are here. you? 
Stephen, hey, uh, doing well. good. Stay with us. We're going to talk about uh, the Capitol, uh, what's going on legislatively, and get you into that conversation. And also, I know you were at the Kemp inauguration with the rest of us yesterday. We'll talk a bit about that. In fact, let's start with just a debrief on uh, Brian Kemp, the new governor, the 83rd governor of Georgia, gave his first speech as governor yesterday. It was like nine plus minutes long. And uh, here was a key phrase from that speech that sort of really established the tone for everything he said. Through the prism of politics, our state appears dividing. Metro versus rural, black versus white, Republican versus Democrat. Elections can simply rip us apart. But after visiting all 159 counties, I can tell you this, we have so much in common. And as governor, I will fight for all Georgians, not just the ones that voted for me. So Kevin, for weeks after Brian Kemp was elected, the uh, question that people were asking was, what kind of governor is he going to be? Is he going to govern uh, toward the people who put him in office, those conservative voters he appealed to throughout the election? Is he going to move to the middle? We didn't really get an answer to that yesterday because we'll see how he governs. But his speech, uh, in the speech, he made it clear he's well aware of those questions and wanted to try to address them at least in a general way. Yeah, I have the strong sense. I mean, I, uh, listening to his speech, and then uh, he spoke briefly at the Wild Hog Supper as well, that he uh, is trying to set a tone of let's get some things done. And he issued some executive orders right away that uh, one in res- directly, directly in response to some reporting we did about the state's uh, sexual harassment investigative practices, which was important to us at the AJC, but more important probably to state employees, of course. And I just think, you know, again, having talked to a few people uh, about all this stuff at the Wild Hawk Supper, including some of the leaders, there seems to be this strong sense of let's get a few important things done and not be distracted or be tempted by some of this partisanship that will inevitably come along in, in, in the chambers of the legislature. But I, I really feel like he, who knows? I mean, we'll see, as you point out. But what do you think, Brian? I mean, you've, you've been in the position of helping a governor set a tone. So I imagine when you listen to that, you know how carefully those words are chosen. And you worked for a governor in Nathan Deal who, much like Brian Kemp, came into office with people uncertain whether he was going to run the state from the conservative position that he had run on. And it wasn't and he had to move a bit to the center uh, eventually. And it didn't happen overnight. Right. I mean, uh, Kevin's predecessors at the AJC and the governor had a much more tense and confrontational relationship with the governor than Kevin had later because things things changed over time. I think the AJC and other media and many Democrats and political opponents thought he was a criminal that in that first year. All those charges from the 2010 that were uh, by well, that were disproven over time uh, were still very real. And so. I will say this. The context is is important. And Brian Kemp doesn't get to create his own context. He cannot change the national political atmosphere that is so toxic. And in Georgia, this is what what really hurts me, Kevin, to get to your point. One thing that has changed, the, the 2010 campaign was divisive, and they said terrible things about Nathan Deal. It is so much worse now. You know, I, I did a, a live town hall event last week with, a, you know, with a Democrat. And if I, I just mentioned Brian Kemp's name. I mentioned Tom Price's name. And I got booed. I mean, he was just toxic. And I, I don't know that Brian Kemp can reach a lot of these people. He needs to say the things that he said yesterday. And Nathan Deal showed that over an eight-year period, you can you can get 50 percent approval from the opposite party because he, he left office beloved by Republicans and Democrats in this state and got the biggest ovation yesterday I thought was really yes, interesting. Yes, he did. He did. <laughs> and, and, but I don't know that—but that's not Brian Kemp's fault. Right. For just a minute, Howard, all of us, I want to park this question uh, that you just raised about— whether Democrats are going to be winner. And so many people who are listening in the public radio office, because the event you did was with a public radio audience over at our friends at WABE the other day. So, you know, there are a lot of people there are going to be skeptical at, and our, our listenership as well. So, but let me park it for a second, um, because I want to talk about these executive orders. The first one in particular, Stephen Fowler, the 
executive order, which now sets new regulations, rules for how sexual harassment in government agencies will be handled and turns them over to the inspector general, seems to me not just a response to the AJC article, but a direct understanding that Brian Kemp and Republicans in this state have a real problem with women voters. And so it is not surprising that this might be the first executive order he'd uh, sign, uh, one that would appeal to uh, women. Yes? Well, that's right. Uh, One of the things that Kemp said was his day one priority is taking care of this. And I think Greg Bluestein in his piece in the AJC mentioned that It is in the era of the Me Too movement. So it's not just about solving sexual harassment or doing things like that, but it's kind of like Brian mentioned, there's certain optics around uh, certain people in the state house or certain, you know, demographics and men and different things. And the the sexual harassment is not being taken seriously. And you have plenty of reporting around that in the state house of different government workers and people feeling like that uh, they were silenced or their voices weren't heard. And so you have this executive order as a way to kind of streamline it all, where all of the state agencies will have streamlined things. They will have both a male and a female representative to be able to investigate these complaints. And so it could change the culture around reporting sexual assault on the state government side. So so just to uh, uh, mention uh, briefly, another one of the executive orders he signed uh, is absolutely in keeping with the promise he made on the campaign trail over and over again. He said he wanted to be the governor for small businesses. And yesterday, one of those executive orders, in fact, establishes a commission to look at the needs uh, that small businesses in this state have. But, Howard, so— you know, Brian talks about the atmosphere is more toxic today. Can I, today. Can I return to that for just a second? Uh, that's what I'm. That's <laughs> thank you, Bill, for coming I'm back to me. Open it up for you. Howard. I just I don't want I don't want anyone listening to come to this conclusion that we somehow magically arrived in an environment where there's all this vitriol in our politics, right? Brian Kemp campaigned as a guy who didn't want to compromise, who had a a pickup truck ready for illegals, who pointed shotguns at teenagers, right? And he he invited and embraced the endorsement of the guy who's done exactly— what he's done in the campaign trail at a higher level, at a higher volume, you know, at higher decibels. So I, 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 I for a second, want to want to take the governor at his word as wanting to be the governor for all Georgians, not just the ones who voted for him. But I also have to hold him and those who supported him accountable for their contributions to this which environment. Which is right. Which is why it's only Brian Kemp himself who can figure out a way to make the turn that will show disenchanted Democrats, people. That's exactly right. So I I think Brian makes a really good point. And, you know, I was there in 2010 and 2014 and and Governor Deal absolutely in good faith worked to bring Democrats along to show them that he was acting in good faith. This governor will have that opportunity as well. But I I think you got to stop at some point. And maybe this yesterday was a turning point. The rhetoric, it's hard for people to forget what you said, especially if you spent a hundred million dollars telling people what you said. Right. Eight thousand people got to hear the governor make a speech as he was inaugurated. A few thousand or several thousand more through the technology that we have at our disposal. But many, 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 many more saw uh, debates, saw uh, television commercials, ads, etc. And they, those images and those words won't easily be erased from their minds. And, and Democrats and, in <laughs> Georgia are going to make sure that yes. people don't forget. I That's mean, true too. the Democrats have de- have pretty well declared, Georgia Democrats, that this is going to be, they're going to be uh, attack dogs in watching how Brian Kemp governs. I was, frankly, Howard, struck a little bit by a an, an, uh, press release that came out from the Georgia Democratic Party. I don't know if you saw it, Kevin, uh, saying that an, another sign of corruption, another sign of uh, Kemp's uh, legal troubles... A photographer had sued him for $115,000 for using a photograph without getting the copyright to it. Well, that's probably not a good thing. But, man, when you start issuing press releases over something like that, you've made it clear you're on the, you're going to be on attack all the time. That's like <laughs> issuing a press release that the, the other party hacked into the voting system. It would be as outrageous <laughs> as that. Who would do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't uh, I don't disagree with anything that that Howard said How about that. Yeah, that that. That's my show about bipartisanship. Uh, <laughs> and I, but I, I want to say uh, on the on the flip side of that. 
a significant number of Georgians believe that the election was illegitimate. They believe that Brian Kemp suppressed voters and that Brian Kemp was unfair to minority voters. None of that is true. None of that is true. Well, I and think we're still, unre- we're still unwinding if how much of that may, may or been, may not be true. Federal judges are still saying looking, there may be something to no that. Collusion, no, no, collusion. no. They are looking, they are looking <laughs> as far as I know, they're looking to see if there was machine malfunction, and I'm willing to wait and see the outcome of that investigation. All right, well, we but will, too. The idea too. That, that there is some barrier put up to Democratic voters is complete poppycock. It hurts faith in our democracy. It it undermines the state and has hurt our our reputation nationally. And Democrats are hurting. All right. I would all love of us. Let me let me jump in. I got to jump sure. in, Stephen. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this conversation is that we hear the 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 lines drawn here between Brian and Howard. They're they're ready to fight over whether <laughs> Kemp is going to. I want the French fries. But Stephen, but Stephen, here's something the governor Kemp can't afford to do. You've got more Democrats suddenly uh, in the state legislature. Republicans still hold a majority of the seats, and they can pretty much get their way on many issues. But Governor Kemp is going to have to govern in such a way that he can draw on Democrats to join him in some of his fights. He can't afford to uh, be a governor just for conservative Republicans, can he? Well, right, Bill. I mean, the... Some of the big marquee issues you're going to have this legislative session are voting rights and voting machines. And that's something that's going to take a lot of time and explanation to get even Republican lawmakers on board with what's going on. But you have this issue of teacher pay raises and some of the other rural issues that it's going to take more than rural Georgia representatives voting. It's going to take more than Republican representatives voting. And so if you were Brian Kemp, you really can't afford to waste your shot early on trying to push something unpopular and risk having some of your marquee issues be uh, political fodder on down the line or just not get to it because you have to spend time on uh, something that isn't really going to go anywhere. I I mean, that's where I started out, Bill. I I agree wholeheartedly with with Stephen. I mean, uh, I just had that feeling as I've listened and I've talked to people that what everybody wants to do is pick a few of those really important things and get them done. And that the, the Democrats and Republicans can align their interests around some of this stuff. The voting thing, I mean, we had, uh, uh, you know, on the show last week when uh, Representative Oliver was on, I mean, it looks like there's going to be, people are going to coalesce around what machines to buy. But the other issues could could be kind of divisive. But some of the stuff around education, I mean, I just think that, that that's what Kemp is, uh, to me, that's what he signaled he was going to do. I'm not going to go at these divisive things. I'm not going to go at some of what you could argue he had the campaign on in order to win the primary and, and win the election. But instead, I'm going to go for these things that there's a much greater chance and broad agreement. Brian, of. what were the first I re, I recall during the first year plus of Nathan Deal's first term, uh, he took on a very controversial issue, immigration laws that really restricted the movement of undocumented residents of the state of Georgia. That's hardly the kind of issue that <laughs> brings people together. It, it was a very divisive issue. Uh, were there? I, I don't, I'm trying to recall early initiatives that your governor uh, took to to try to say yes, I'm a governor for all people. The uh, immigration bill really was one of the top line issues of the 2011 uh, session, which was his first one. But you have to remember, this was the dark depths of the Great Recession. Uh, this is when the budget. Hit, was bottoming out. And, uh, you know, government revenues were a lagging indicator. You know, the private sector had already been through it, and now it's hitting the public sector. And so we had to go out and cut spending again. We had to reform hope to keep it from going bankrupt. So hope reform was a huge thing and not something people want to talk about because it's still tough choices that we're dealing with today, but it saved the program. So those were some early things. It was all basically driven by the Great Recession. And we did a lot of stuff in, you know, seeding economic development projects to become the number one state for business, which was his main thematic throughout those first couple of years. And then, of course, 
we ended up getting it six years in a row. So a lot of the seeds for that success started in 2011 and 2012 during really, really hard times. Remind me, though, what he did on the immigration stuff. What went on in his first well, session? Driver, no, dri- no driver's licenses yeah, for undocumented residents. Right. Show me your paper. It was tough stuff. It mm-hmm. was, you know, making employers e-verify yep. their new employees. Uh, we created a state board that that allowed people to complain if city governments or county governments were hiring illegals for you know, uh, landscaping work or <clears throat> school I'd be work, curious, et, cetera, et cetera. I'd be curious to know when you think it turned around, because obviously Show Me Your Papers wasn't, it was a divisive issue in many quarters, not just for Democratic voters, not just for people of color, but also for people in agriculture, which will, is obviously and still the largest industry uh, <clears throat> in the state of Georgia. So I, I think there there were definitely some, some bumpy moments in the first uh, couple years. It was years. criminal justice Criminal reform. justice reform. That's what I was going to say. To me, well, that was a Turning the turning point. Let me let me that, that started that year too. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Yeah. That was the first the first installment of that was was Dan. And one thing that I mentioned in the op ed that I did about Governor Deal and Kevin's paper on Sunday was talk about you know, he rolled out criminal justice reform completely unbeknownst to his staff. You know, we we had campaigned on this hard right <laughs> yeah. platform. Yeah. And and so he told me he was going to, you know, talk about the crime issue. That's how he says it, issue, in, in his in his uh, state of the state. And I was like, what crime issue are you talking about? And and he told me, and I was like, ah, great. We're going to get Willie Horton here. I mean, somebody's going to be getting a slap on the wrist and then in a meth-fueled rage is going to kill somebody. Oh. You know, I, I was really scared of, of that. Course. Heading into the reelect, and of course, little did I know it was a huge success, huge. saved us hundreds of millions of dollars. Which, right? Uh, let me get back to Stephen again down at the state capitol. Stephen, what what's going to emerge early? Do you have any sense yet of, of the clearly one of the biggest issues that's going to play out throughout the session? Uh, not just in the supplement; it'll part of it, I think, in the supplemental budget, but then certainly as they look at the. Uh, budget for the next fiscal year is the concern about an economic downturn. What's the budget revenue estimate? What is uh, Governor Kemp working with his economic advisors decide the growth will be in the state? How does he figure out what the spending will be based on that projected growth? Aside from that big budget issue, what what do you think is going to emerge early? Is that a fair question at this point? Too, Too soon to say. I mean, I think it's a little too soon to say. I think Governor Kemp is playing things close to the best, and Thursday's State of the State is really where he's going to unveil a lot more of the policies that he's going to champion this first year and the all-important question of how they're going to be paid for. So uh, that's the thing. One thing we did figure out, or we'll figure out tomorrow, is the calendar for the first uh, several days of the session Uh, and how that fits around the Super Bowl coming to Atlanta. So that will be uh, firmed up tomorrow. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because, of course, we had David Ralston, Speaker Ralston, on the show last week, and uh, uh, Jim Galloway was with me when we interviewed the Speaker, and we said that to him during a break. We said, we love the fact that in previous sessions you've begun this practice of giving us the calendar for the entire session, which never used to happen. And uh, he said, well, it's going to be a little harder this year. We got this football game <laughs> coming to town. So I guess he's still he's trying to figure out the early stages of that, huh, Stephen? Well, it looks like um, the last day before the Super Bowl will be January 30th, and then we'll come back Tuesday, February 5th. So enough time for uh, all the football fans to leave town and the politics fans to come back. Do we, okay, two other quick questions. We're going to have to get to a break, and then we're going to get, give you a chance to go off and do the work you're doing for GPB uh, Radio. Number one, do we know whether he's going to give yet a separate budget message? Uh, is he going to incorporate that in the state of state? Is that being made clear to any of you yet? Different governors handle that differently. Um and, uh, well, I guess that's the, really the key question. What do we know about when he's going to give us some budget uh, uh, talk? Uh, right now, we have not really received any sort of guidance about the budget process and any sort of uh, snippets of what is to come. Okay. Stephen Fowler, you're going to be down at the Capitol for us all session. We look forward to hearing your reports on GPB radio and uh We also look forward to having you join us uh, on occasion here on Political Rewind. Thanks so much, Stephen. Happy to be here. Um, We're going to take another break in a second. Before we do, I want to clarify something that a couple of you have connected with us about. (laughs) During yesterday's show, when uh, we talked about Brian Kemp's uh, education background, 
there was there was conversation about the fact that he had spent time as a student at Athens Academy, which was a Clark, Clark Central. No, he had spent time at Athens Academy, the private school, which a member of the panel talked about as having been a seg school. We got a couple people calling us and saying, no, no, he went to Clark Central. Um, Tom Faust talked to the press office at the governor's office to clarify this. In fact, both are right. He went to Athens Academy for essentially elementary school through seventh grade, and then he went to Clark Central. So uh, just want to be clear that both schools are in his background, and we want to make sure that our listeners understand that. Okay, let's get to a break. When we come back, we got a lot more to talk about with our panel. On the next Fresh Air... We're friends because Hal Roach put us together. And the only reason we stayed together was because the audience wanted it. John C. Riley tells us about playing Oliver Hardy and bringing some classic Laurel and Hardy comedy routines to life in the new film Stan and Ollie. Riley also produced and co-stars in the film The Sisters Brothers about two contract killers in the Old West. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. I am David Moses, Director of Public Relations and Communications for the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa. What makes the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa so spectacular? As soon as you walk out from any one of our hotel rooms, you are feet away from the Atlantic Ocean and the pristine natural environs that Hilton Head Island offers. We underwrite with Georgia Public Broadcasting because we believe in the high-quality programming it delivers. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. During the break, Editor Riley said that he had a question for Brian Robinson that he would like to ask. Oh, okay. Uh, Brian, so you were part of shaping that very first inaugural speech that Nathan Deal gave, right? And The inaugural speech or the state of the state speech? The, the inaugural speech, okay. right? In other words, his very first words as governor. So now as you listen to Brian's Kemp speech— Tell us what you heard, what what important words were chosen from your perspective that we all ought to pay attention to as citizens of this state. I think I think he transmitted a few very important points. And I, I want to say, as somebody who trains people on public speaking, it was the best speech I've ever seen Brian Kemp give. It was it was fluid, it was well thought out. I think you saw someone here who was looking for conciliation, who was trying to transition from politics to governance. And I think a lot of people were looking for that. When I was looking at the bus tour stops, Kevin, you know, it's just rural places that he went in mid-tier cities outside of the metro area where Republicans are losing a lot of ground. And and I began to think he's just going to talk to that to that base. But what I saw yesterday was somebody trying to talk beyond his base, right, as as which I think is important to governance over the next three months. I apologize, Brian. Uh, Howard, as long as we're talking about the speech, which is fine, uh, I thought it was interesting. He he said, you know, I didn't get here alone. Uh, there were great Georgians who uh, have made this state great. Mm-hmm. And here's who he mentioned. Martin Luther King Jr., Clarence Thomas, Thomas, Hank Aaron, Herschel Walker, Ray Charles, Otis Redding. Oh, and this white guy, Greg Allman. <laughs> <laughs> and Vince Dooley. And Vince Dooley. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, yeah. for, a, for a candidate who is trying to say, I'm not just the white rural uh, Georgian. That seemed a little yeah, transparent. He, he, he didn't seem all that familiar with the names that he. And, and I shouldn't say well, familiar. Well, no, no. Now we don't know that. Well, no, but no, go no. Ahead. I'm not, not so much. Obviously, this was a, a, re- a rehearsed and researched uh, addition yeah. to the speech. That's yeah. what I mean to say. Not that he didn't know those folks okay. were, but that, that he obviously picked them and plucked them to, to highlight them in the speech. I, I didn't really see how it tied in. I thought the uh, the coach, uh, you know, Billy allegory Henderson was, was, was great. Terrific. I totally agree with that. Billy Henderson, Kevin, a legendary coach, first in Macon, football coach, then goes to Athens, Clark Central, turns them from a losing team and one of the state's great high school football teams. But Kemp's talking about the divisiveness, the racial divisiveness, and how Billy Henderson took them out for training, off campus, whatever, and they came back solidified. If that really, you know, I'm hopeful that's a really true story. There's a skeptical journalist for you, right? Well, of course, of course. But that, that story 
is meaningful. Well, yeah. I think that's important. It's part of why I asked Brian the question, because no matter what you think of the speech or what you believe about the speech, we know that they thought about every word before he uttered them. Fair yeah. statement, right, Brian? And, you know, there if he can figure out how to tell a story— you know, shape the story of the state that he wants Georgians to buy into and believe, that will be important. And not every, you know, governor obviously can do that, and some are more comfortable than others. Which gets to the final answer to your question. The most important line in that speech, as far as sending a message, was, I will be the governor of all Georgians, whether you voted for me or not. He got a huge ovation to that. I think one of the biggest ovations of the day, other than Governor Deals. And it was the right message. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. I think it is absolutely the right thing to say. The proof is in the pudding. He said a lot of other things, you know, in front of a microphone before. And I, I think the question is, how will he adhere to the words? Right. Well, Howard, we, as a Democrat, we, shouldn't you have said that you wished he had said, uh, even those who weren't allowed to vote for me? <laughs> that's right. That's a, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll be the asterisk governor for all Georgians, is what Democrats said, uh, I believe, is their their line. By the way, uh, breaking news from Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, Theresa May just lost the Brexit vote. Wow. Yeah, the exit as vote. Yeah. Got to start all over. President Trump will be happy. He thought it was a lousy deal to begin with. It seems clear that uh, Theresa May will be calling <laughs> Brian Robinson at any moment to clean up her message. <laughs> uh, Stephen, let's talk Stephen King very quickly. Howard here. Here's a guy who, in the course of his career as a member of the House from Iowa, has repeatedly made offensive comments about every minority you can possibly think of. Republicans have shrugged it off for years and years. And today they said enough is enough when he said, when did it ever become wrong to be a white nationalist or whatever? They've stripped him of all his committee assignments. Republicans clearly are beginning to understand they cannot afford to be the party of uh, prejudice and discrimination and perhaps racism. Senator Tim Scott said it the best, uh, you know, his letter, his op-ed about why people have these perceptions around the Republican Party. I, I mean, he underscored what the issues would be with some allowing him to remain in power. I, I, I'm really hopeful that members of the Republican Party and leadership are also getting to a place where they're doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, not just out of political expediency. I think that's when people who've been oppressed historically in this country will say, okay, I'm, I'm in a position where I could potentially join that party. How do you even stay? How do you convince your constituents to keep you in office? Sure, he's got two Get, years. He's got no committee assignments. It seems to me that's a, that's a, a, a death knell for a member of Congress. Of course, though, he's been reelected repeatedly. Yeah, but he's never been stripped of all of his committee assignments no, before. I, I, I mean, and, and I guess you'd have to look into what what have those committee assignments done for his constituents? Has he been the able to bring home bacon? He's on the Agriculture Committee, yeah. which is very important to Western, to Western Iowa. But I would say I don't think it matters. I think if you polled Americans and said, what committee is your congressman on? I think maybe 0.5% would know the answer to that. I don't think nobody they Okay, knows. I hear you. I think that's a very fair retort. And you're lucky I don't have enough time to come <laughs> back and explain why I think that does matter, even if your constituents don't know what committees you're on. Brian Robinson, it's really a pleasure to have you back on the show. Love being back. And Howard Franklin, you as well. Kevin Riley. Tuesdays always cheer me up because I know that's the day you are most often going to be here with us. Thanks it's for coming It's absolutely become my favorite day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all out there for listening, watching on Facebook Live. We're back tomorrow at 2 with another show. By the way, Thursday morning at 11, GPB News, I guess on radio and TV, will uh, present live the uh, governor's state of the state address from the Capitol. You may want to tune in for that. We'll get a little more information about how uh, he intends to run the state in his first year in office. Take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.